Testing. Okay. Mark 11, 1 through 11. Now, when they drew near to Jerusalem, to Bethphage and Bethany, at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately as you enter, you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it. If anyone says to you, Why are you doing this? Say, The Lord has need of it, and it will send it back there immediately. And they went away and found a colt tied at a door outside in the street, and they untied it. And some of those standing there said to them, What are you doing untying the colt? And they told them what Jesus had said, and they let them go. And they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks on it, and he sat on it. And many spread their cloaks on the road, and the others spread leafy branches that they had cut down from the fields. And those who went before and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. And he entered Jerusalem and went into the temple. And when he had looked around at everything, as it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. Thank you, Collins family. That was great. The triumphal entry is a very familiar scene in the life of Jesus. If you've been at church at all, exposed to church, you know that we call this Palm Sunday because of the palms that were raised in exaltation to this one who was riding a donkey. All four gospel writers include this scene. And I was thinking through the last couple weeks of this sermon And there are three major questions I would like us to address this morning. Why did Jesus feel it was important to engage in such an activity? Why did he even do this? Secondly, what was the crowd understanding of what was occurring? Why did they shout what they shouted? And how did this fit? And then third, if this was truly a regal event, why didn't the Roman soldiers arrest Jesus right away? And so this morning, I'd like us to address those three questions with fresh eyes. Uh, Familiarity can breed content. So we want to focus in looking at the historical and biblical context as we address the theological significance of a very important scene. So let me pray. Father, we come to you this morning. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for these events that have been recorded And it wasn't just for history's sake. These weren't recorded so that we could enjoy a fine piece of literature. Rather, these were recorded for theological reasons. Reasons that are very clear as we open the Word and study. And so, Father, guide us today as we go to the Word. Thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. If you would, turn, if you haven't already, to Mark chapter 11. We've been journeying through the Gospel of Luke, and I, I know what you're saying. Wait a minute. What are you going to Mark for, Hoffaditz? Well, we'll get back to Luke. Uh, the goal is to end Luke with the triumphal entry next Palm Sunday. Uh, so that gives you an idea of how long we're going to be in the Gospel of Luke. So just bear with me. Uh, I did say it was 2024, right? Yes. 
Well, in Mark chapter 1, or 11 verse 1, excuse me, it says, Now as they approached Jerusalem near Bethphage and Bethany. We have two, how, two locations, two villages. And immediately you're going, wait a minute, I, I, I've heard Bethany. That played a key role. Remember Bethany? It's the home of Lazarus, Mary, and Martha, these siblings that lived together. It, it's where Lazarus was raised from the dead. It's where Mary anoints Jesus at Bethany. It's where Jesus will ascend after the resurrection. A significant town. Bethage as well plays a key role. It's, it's referred to as the house of the early figs is what that name means. Bethany, if we could show a map here, I'll show you this. Bethany is about two miles away from the temple, from Jerusalem. Bethage is about a mile away. And you can see Bethphage is really on the crest of the Mount of Olives. You would go, the red line shows you the path that Jesus would have taken as he goes down into the valley. And in fact, if we want to show the next two slides, I'll show you. This is standing on the Mount of Olives, looking over, which is now the Dome of the Rock, but that's where the, the temple would have set. And you can see we would go down the valley, and this shows you the, the temple at the time of Jesus, the Herodian temple. And this is the gate Jesus would have entered which is the Eastern Gate, the Golden Gate, and I would also, some have called a beautiful gate, I don't, but a very significant gate because this is the one the Messiah will return and enter someday in the future. Thank you for those maps. So let's go back to those notes then and let's look at this. Why is these towns significant? Because our time frame is the Passover. And if you know, even today, Passover just started last night. It's a seven-day event. It's very significant. In the first century, it was one of the three pilgrimages to Jerusalem was the Passover. A city that normally housed, some say, 50 to 70,000 would have quadrupled, some say, 300,000 in size during the Passover festival so you've got to find a place to stay during the Passover, right? And many would stay in these villages that are located on the other side of the Mount of Olives and then come down for the festivals. The Passover was to commemorate the Exodus, commemorating God's preservation of his people. How fitting that it overlaps with this event because at the Passover, as you remember, the term comes from the blood that was placed upon the lintel and the angel of death would pass over. And so this is where we, we get this idea. All four gospels mention in their accounts of the transfiguration. It's, it's one of the few events in the life of Christ you'll find in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Though all four record the Mount of Olives, it was the logical progression. Zechariah 14.4 says, On that day, referring to the end, his feet, the Messiah, shall stand on the Mount of Olives, which lies before Jerusalem on the east. If you've been to Jerusalem, it is a glorious place to stand, looking into the city of Jerusalem, imagining the, the temple sitting there where the Dome of the Rock is today. But this is why we see Jesus in Bethphage and Bethany. He would have, the text even ends in verse 11 that he goes back to Bethany, most likely staying with Lazarus, Mary, and Martha. But notice what the text tells us. Jesus sent two of his disciples, we don't know who they are, and he says to them, go to the village ahead of you, and as soon as you enter, you will find a colt or a donkey that has, it is tied there that has never been ridden. 
I'm not an expert in donkeys. That might surprise you. I do have some experience with these unridden four-legged creatures. You see, growing up, my sister and I had this bright idea. There was this pony that was fenced behind our property. It wasn't ours, and it had never been ridden. And we had the brilliant idea that I was going to ride the pony. <laughs> so we got a five-gallon bucket, set it beside the pony, and we had some apples from the, one of the trees. And so my sister said, I'll give it the apples, and you jump on its back. <laughs> Should have thought more carefully on that one. I said, sure, no problem. It'll be great. And you know exactly what happened. So uh, it was quite an experience, very short-lived. I was reading online about donkeys, and it's interesting. It says they don't react well to unfamiliar situations. <laughs> they state further that you should ra only ride a trained riding donkey, one who has been well-equipped they don't like unpleasant surprises. And here's a third point. It says, don't be scared around the donkey or scream. This will scare the donkey. So Jesus, we ask, why would you ride an unridden donkey in a crowd? You may not have a lot of experiences with donkeys, but this does not make sense. Why would you do this? And the reason for Jesus' actions stem from an Old Testament prophecy, Zechariah 9. And I'd like you to turn there, if you would. It's in the Minor Prophets. This book was penned in 520 B.C., so we're 500 years before Christ. It is the return of the exiles from Babylon, the rebuilding the temple. And Zechariah pens these words, it's so important to the triumphal entry or this procession that we're observing today that Matthew and John in their Gospels will explicitly cite Zechariah 9. Look at starting at verse 9, Zechariah 9, 9. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation. He is humble he is mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the fowl of a donkey. I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim, the war horse from Jerusalem, the battle bow shall be cut off, and he shall speak peace to the nations. 500 years before Christ. Zechariah 9, 16, on that day, the Lord their God will save them as a flock of his people, for like the jewels of a crown, he will shine on his land, for how great is his goodness, and how great his beauty. <laughs> Our Savior wasn't seeking to demonstrate his authority over his creation, though that's clearly seen as he rides this unridden donkey through a throng of people shouting, no, what he is attempting to do is to demonstrate that he is this promised one that Zechariah 9 foretold. Jesus' actions are definitely in keeping with the prophecy. The gospel writers saw that. That's why they highlight it. And that understanding of Zechariah is seen later in Jewish writings. The Mishnah states, no one may use an animal on which a king rides the never ridden shows his regal authority that it is to be preserved only for the king. 
and his knowledge of where this donkey is going to be found only further demonstrates that he truly is the king, the omniscient one. Right? Because the text says, well, you go to this village and you're going to find this donkey. And of course, as he states, people are going to ask, hey, what are you doing? You can't take my BMW. What are you doing with that? Right? That's the idea. What we find is that in the first century, acquisition of an item for the use of a rabbi or a leader was acceptable as long as it's returned. And he even says it will be brought back. So once as they state, and some scholars think there's more to this when it says the Lord needs it, could indicate his deity. I think later we're going to see that being portrayed in this text. But the idea is this is the one who needs it, this teacher, and you will allow him to have it. And so again, this is common. This is very indicative of first century culture. Well, notice what, the, what we see in verses 7 and 8. Then they brought Jesus the colt and they threw their cloaks on it and he sat on it. So this is its saddle, so to speak. And many spread their cloaks on the road and others spread branches. And this is a one mile track. Remember the map. We're at Bethphage. We're going down the Mount of Olives, down into the Kidron Valley, another 70 to 100 feet. And then you're going to come back up and enter into the Eastern Gate. So you, you have this fanfare of clothes being thrown out like a rug, right? To keep the dust from kicking up onto the great one, the king. The palm branches were a sign of royalty seen throughout uh, ancient Jewish history. But far more significant, anyone standing there who knows their Old Testament, immediately things are flashing into mind, such as when Solomon came. Remember when Solomon was coordinated and he came on a colt, on a donkey. He was brought up according to 1 Kings. Jehu, one of the Davidic kings as well, when he was crowned king, the people laid out their garments before him. Again, Zechariah 9, a text we saw, and even in the intertestament period, the time between the old and the new, one of the Jewish rulers from the Hashmonean period, Judas Maccabus, when he overthrew the Greeks and he took Jerusalem to cleanse the temple, branches were waved as they made their way into the temple. And all of this comes crashing in, a text that we're so familiar, and yet it's so easy to miss the backdrop, what is lying behind this. The context of Zechariah 9.9 is truly being seen, and yet it's even part of a larger picture, because it's a promise made to David nearly a thousand years before Christ came on the scene. In 2 Samuel 7, the Lord stated, and your house... This is the Lord speaking to David. Your house, your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne will be established forever. And later, Jeremiah, one of the prophets, 23, says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for God's righteous branch, <clears throat> excuse me, David, a righteous branch, and he shall reign as king and, and, and deal wisely. He shall execute judgment and righteousness in the land. In this day, Judah will be saved and Israel will dwell securely. And this is the name by which he shall be called. The Lord is our righteous. 
The covenant God made with David is being fulfilled in some sense. It could be yet future. We could debate this. But Jesus is that Davidic king that has been promised in Zechariah 9 and goes all the way back to, to the covenant God made with David. John Collins writes... New Testament scholar, the concept of the Davidic Messiah as the warrior king who would destroy the enemies of Israel and institute an era of unending peace constitutes the common core of Jewish messianism around the turn of the century. When you asked someone on the streets, a Jewish male or female, you're looking for this Messiah, this coming one, what does that entail? Often you would hear it's a Davidic descendant. It is a king who will overthrow Rome and bring us peace, righteousness. No wonder the crowd shouts Hosanna, but we'll get to the crowd in a minute. What was Jesus intending to convey in this act? I would argue what Schnabel states in his recent book on Jesus in Jerusalem. Jesus stages his approach to Jerusalem deliberately as a royal messianic event that fulfills prophecy. Zechariah 9 is no coincidence. Mark doesn't explicitly mention it in his gospel, but it is clearly alluded to. Rudolf Boltmann, who taught at Marburg in the 1950s and 60s, he states of this event, a New Testament scholar states of this event, the triumphal entry, it's absolutely absurd. There is no way Jesus would present himself in such fashion. Really? We, we've been studying Luke's gospel. What does Jesus state to those disciples that John the Baptist sent? Are you the coming one? What does Jesus state? He gives his Davidic lineage. He shows in the sense of, of what was promised in Isaiah 61. This is not a coincidence. No, the only thing that is absurd is that the, the crowd does ultimately rejects him. Boltman, you're wrong. It's clear what Jesus is presenting. Unless we think the story is a concocted fable, be careful. It's stated in all four Gospels. And in fact, I would argue it's a very embarrassing piece of data. If I'm making up a story about Jesus to try to garnish followers, I'm not going to tell you this story because already we're at odds. If the early Christians were at odds with the political scene. There would be no political advantage to invent the story of the triumphal entry. It certainly does not enhance the portrayal of a compassionate God or highlight his miraculous activities. The scriptures are clear. And Boltman is wrong. <laughs> the absurdity is that ultimately they will reject this one who is presented as their king. Did the crowd know? Their actions seem to state this, but far more significant is what they're going to say. We'll get to this in a minute. I, I remember we uh, had a group that uh, went to worship near Balmoral one Sunday in Scotland, and the Queen of England, when she's at residence at Balmoral, worships at this little church. So we had the opportunity, she was in residence, to worship with the Queen. 
And she sat over to the side, and there's all this regalia, the security. You knew something big was happening, that someone of grandeur was coming, and she sat over to the side. And it was glorious, though far more significant as we worship the king of kings, but it was nice to worship with the queen. There was these expectations, and you see that with the crowd, because look what they state in verse 9. But those who went ahead and those who followed kept shouting, Hosanna. The cry is from Psalm 118. You don't need to turn there, but I want to read to you three verses from this psalm. Psalm 118 says, Save us, we pray, O Lord. O Lord, O pray, give us success. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We bless you from the house of the Lord. And then in verse 28, you are my God. I will give thanks to you. You are my God. I will extol you. Oh, give thanks to the Lord for he is good. For his steadfast love endures forever. Psalm 118 was a collection, a small group of psalms that were sung during Jewish festivals. They would have been sung as you went up into the temple area. And Psalm 118, again, is, is one of those very significant psalms. But it has more meaning than just that. Throughout Jewish writings, Psalm 118 was associated with the anointing of David. This is interesting, isn't it? There are similar thoughts that we see in Psalm 118 that it resonates with David's own words found in 2 Samuel, for instance, or 1 Chronicles. The connection is clear. The day that this crowd would cry Hosanna, which means save now, or literally it's a plea for God to save his people. They are fully understanding, I would argue, what Jesus is presenting to them. They were envisioning a Davidic king. Sadly, what they're expecting is that Jesus is going to overthrow Rome and set up shop. What they don't realize is we have a Friday coming. <laughs> because the one who's come has come to save. Verse 10, the explicit reference to David is seen. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Matthew has, blessed is the one, the son of David who comes. Hosanna in the highest. It's a glorious scene, isn't it? The, the overtones of the Old Testament come crashing in. This, the, the Gospels weren't written in a bubble. It's conveying what, what thought was of the first century among the Jewish people. And the understanding is that when the Messiah comes, he's going to ride an unridden donkey into Jerusalem and indeed bring us salvation. That's why verse 11 is so shocking in this entire scene. It's rather subtle, but it's, the silence is deafening. Look what the text says. Then Jesus entered Jerusalem, went to the temple, and they brought out the oil to anoint him. The, the priest came and gave the blessing like they did with Solomon, like they did with Yehu. No. It says he looked around, which is a, the term is used six times by Mark throughout his gospel to refer to a very discerning look. He looked around at everything and he left. There's a foreshadowing, isn't there in the text? Jesus knew. But sadly, this, you could hear crickets 
this one who had come to present themselves as, as himself as king. There's no priestly greeting. There's no anointing. There's no declaration. As Jesus came to this temple, he didn't come as a tourist to ooh and you know, awe over the incredible masonry or the amazing feats of construction. Nor did Jesus come as a repentant worshiper with his sacrifice. Rather, Jesus came as predicted in Malachi chapter 3. Listen to these words. Behold, I send my messenger. He will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. As the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. Behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. Who can endure the day of his coming? Who can stand when he appears? For he's like a refiner's fire and the fuller's soap. Those who dispute the historicity of this account and argue this was not true, this did not happen, it's absurd like Boltmann might argue, they often appeal to, well, if Jesus truly was presenting himself as the Davidic king and the crowd understood that, then why didn't the soldiers arrest him? I mean, they had a fortress just on the northwest quadrant of the temple complex called the Antonio Fortress. And, and, and from the Antonio Fortress, they looked over. They were there for crowd control. That's why Pilate was in Jerusalem at the time. It's because of the Passover. Trust me, he would much rather be in his hacienda in Caesarea. It was gorgeous, right on the sea. But we must remember there, if we're talking hundreds of thousands of people would, he, would the soldiers really have noted something going on here? Secondly, they're not devout Jews. I mean, even if you go down to the Western Wall, or we call it the Wailing Wall today, I mean, if you go on Tuesday, there's, there's bar mitzvahs going all over the place. You got this entourage over here, and, you know, Mazel Tov, they're throwing candy. It's wonderful. I mean, there's all this activity going on. Would they have caught it? Secondly, or thirdly, the Antonio Fortress is on the northwest corner. We're entering through the eastern gate. And this is not the main gate. It's from the south side that most of the population would have entered. They weren't carrying weapons. They're speaking Aramaic. Most of your soldiers only spoke Greek or Latin. And as I said, the main entrance is on the other side. So I have no problem saying the Roman soldiers didn't arrest Jesus at this point. They did not see him as a threat. They were concerned about other things going on. But again, the significance is huge. But there's something else, I think even one step further. As we look at Psalm 118, as we look at Zechariah 9, yes, they present Jesus as this promised son of David, or the connections being made. But on another level, the use of these Old Testament references, particularly Zechariah, depicts a universal dominion of the divine king. Don't miss this. There appears to be an intentional ambiguity in Zechariah's and even in Malachi's predictions or prophecies. You're not sure if you're talking about a human Davidic king or you're talking about God himself. Zechariah 9 alludes to what was an ancient tradition and pictures the king on the way to being enthroned, but throughout the reapplication of the picture of the Davidic global rule to the universal dominion of the divine king, we find, I would argue, a scene portraying Jesus as both the Davidic king and God in the flesh. 
John understood this. He, he highlights it clearly. Think about Luke's gospel. He even records one, you know, there's a, an antiphony of things being, a kaleidoscope of things being presented and shouted as Jesus is riding this donkey. Luke records, they state, peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Why would they say that? Because salvation belongs solely to our God. And so as this great scene is occurring and why all the gospel writers record it is Jesus is not only the Davidic reign, the king that we've longed to see, he is also God in the flesh who has come in our midst. That's why Malachi states, I, God, will come, right? Let's go back, look at that text. Again, behold, I, the Lord whom you seek, will suddenly come to this temple. The next scene in Mark's gospel, Jesus will go back to the temple the next day, and what does he do? He cleanses the temple. He gets rid of the money changers, that which hinders worship of God. This is the one who comes, the author of peace, bringing good news. And so, on Palm Sunday, what do we do with this familiar scene I've got three points in your notes. The first of these is to hail Jesus as king is to recognize his deity. He is God. In the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word is fully God. The text renders. As we enter Easter, we're reminded that this event isn't some concocted fable to bolster the claims of a new religion. Provide a crutch for the weak and the feeble-minded or offer a cute story to entertain. Rather, this story is of the God-man Jesus, the one who calls for our allegiance, not only when things are glorious and wonderful, but he also calls for our allegiance when we struggle, we fear, we doubt, and we grow weary. He also did not come to share his story with some social agenda, personality, or cultural movement. He alone is God, and God alone. One New Testament scholar, Gary Burge, listen to this great statement he makes. The exclusive claim of Christianity about Christ is not centered on our belief that Jesus was right about God. It is centered on our claim that God was fully present in Christ to reconcile the world to himself. It is the theological claim about Jesus that makes the spiritual claims of Jesus potent. Jesus' words are right because these words are God's words. Jesus' way is not superior because it promotes a higher ethic or because it champions values that resonate with our spiritual sensitivities. Jesus' way is true because in him we find God drawing us to himself. Hosanna, Hosanna, they declare, because he is God this one who can control his creatures, who, who knows all things, where the donkey's gonna be re, uh, stored. He knows all that, but far greater is he brings us salvation and he brings us peace. And this leads us to the second. To hail Jesus as king is to submit to his authority. Jesus intended to enter Jerusalem as its king and provoke its people either to affirm or deny his allegiance or their allegiance to him and his message. Sadly, the quote that's anonymous, but I think it's, it's very well stated. People love God everywhere except on a throne. 
Reminds me of the, the butler, if you've seen Downton Abbey or these, these maids. Yes, my Lord, whatever you need, my Lord, right? How can I serve you? We are seen as followers, if you know Jesus as your Savior, as of servants to Christ. Bruce Ware states, the bondage that liberates is a bondage to righteousness, a bondage to the will and ways of God, a bondage that claims as its master and Lord, the one whose holy, merciful character is now reproduced in us and through us. Our freedom to be what we were created to be consists in our bondage to God and to nothing else. He is our king. Hosanna, right? In light of the deception of the day and the false teachers, Paul challenges Timothy to persevere in the faith. The apostle writes, you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus, being trained in the words of the faith and of the good doctrine that you have followed. For those of you who know this king, are you obedient subjects, yielding your allegiance to the one who deserves everything. Hosanna to the highest. And so to hail Jesus as king is to recognize his deity. To hail Jesus as king is to submit to his authority. And finally, to hail Jesus as king is to recognize our need for a savior. Part of the gospel story, part of what lies before us this next week is going to be intense suffering. Good Friday, we'll look at crucifixion. It was not invented by the Romans, but it certainly was perfected by them to in inflict the greatest amount of pain for the longest period of time. It was horrific, the three stages of a Roman crucifixion. But far more horrific is when he took on our sin. And the Father has to say to the Son, can't look on you. You bear the sin of humanity. And this one riding this donkey is going to the cross. He gave his life as a ransom for many. And so this morning I ask if you're watching online or you're sitting here in a pew chair, do you know this king? Jesus came riding a donkey, but in his second coming, he will be riding a white horse. Jesus came the first time to wear a crown of thorns, but when he comes the second time, he'll be wearing a diadem of crowns. Jesus came in order to present himself as Savior, who would die for our sin, but when he comes the second time, he will come as the victorious warrior to judge sin. You can discredit the scene in the life of Jesus as absurd, or dismiss the various connections with the Old Testament as relevant. But there is a day when each one of us will have to stand before the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. We will bend our knee and declare him as King. So we can shout Hosanna today, Lord save us, you are our King. Or if you refuse to bend your knee now, you will bend it in the future as you will then face a Christless eternity and the wrath of the one who comes to, to judge those who do not respond. Do not be like the religious rulers where there's just crickets. <laughs> I'm not going to respond. 
May we be like this crowd. Hosanna, blessed is this one who comes in the name of the Lord. Father, it's a powerful scene. We often gloss over these events because they're so familiar. If we've grown up in the church, we could, we've lost count of the number of sermons from Palm Sunday. And yet, we step back, we, we go, whoa, wait a minute. There is something very serious that looms here. It's this one called Jesus who's presenting himself as king as the promise that was made to David is being fulfilled, but also it is you in the flesh dwelling in our midst. Father, indeed, we cry, save us. Hosanna. Your son is glorious, and we are so grateful for those of us who know your son to call him our king, our savior, our Lord. Hosanna. In Jesus' name, amen.